If you have a Bible with you, open it to John chapter 8, verse 21. I'll be reading through verse 30 here in a moment. Uh, I, I have a Twitter account, and I go on Twitter. I never really post anything on there, uh, or tweet, as they call it. Um, but I did see something that I thought was interesting this week, and it reminded me of, of the early days in college when we used email for stuff like this, uh, where they had a sort of a questionnaire that was going around and saying that if you were only allowed one of these certain things, what would it be? And there were things listed like cuisine or type of, of music, genre of music or a sport or a season. And for a number of these things, I had like really definite right answers that all of you should probably agree with. Uh, things like the, the best season is clearly fall. Uh, it is not summer because summer gets too hot. It's not winter because winter is too cold. And spring seems like it would be just right like the fall, but spring is just horribly wet. And I understand the irony of saying that while there are puddles outside. So, uh, but generally speaking, fall, fall is better. For other things, it was a kind of a toss-up. For my, my cuisine, if I only could take one cuisine, what would I take? And I think I would take Chinese food. And I don't mean actual Chinese food. I mean like the fake American Chinese food, which is clearly the best cuisine ever. Uh, it was kind of a toss-up between that or cereal. Um, but given that the Chinese invented everything, they probably invented cereal as well, so I think I'm covered on that. So um, many other people said thing for things like their, their favorite author, and you got, you got a lot of divergent opinions, especially amongst Christians. Some, some would say C.S. Lewis, others would say uh, Tolkien, some said Bavnik, some said Luther, but many, many, many people said Calvin, and it's hard to disagree with Calvin, not, not simply because everything he said was right, because it clearly wasn't. Um, I, I don't agree with Calvin on everything, uh, but he is repeatedly, when I read him, one of those who seems to do a really excellent job at summing up and taking the best out of everyone who came before him and is rarely topped by those who come after him. He is an incredibly sober and, and even-handed interpreter of scripture, and I really do appreciate how he handles things with a cool head, unless you read him on baptism, and then he doesn't handle things with a cool head at all, uh, but that's a different, different sermon altogether. One of the reasons why I really like Calvin uh, and I thought of him was because of our text this morning. Um, Our text this morning is really just an extension of our text last time. You'll notice in the ESV there's really no division. I put a division in there because I think it it needed a little bit more time to think through and to speak on. Um, But there isn't really a division. It's more of an extension of what we talked about last week. And what we're going to do is see that there is a, a very high contrast between who Jesus is talking to and the Jews that he is talking to and who he is himself. And that's part of what we are going to do today is simply look at that contrast between who Jesus is and who we are. And so the question that kind of came to mind as I, as I figured out that we were doing that is where to begin. And I was reminded of the beginning of Calvin's Institutes where he, he is trying to figure out why, how should I start my, my study? How should I start with where we understand things? And he says there's, there's basically two places where you can start. You can either start with an understanding of man or you can start with an understanding of God. And it seems like the pious people that we are, we would just say, hey, you start with God. But Calvin said, it's actually not that simple. To really know who God is, you need to know who you are. Because only in your fallenness, only in your sin, can you truly explain the greatness of who God is. But then you only really know your sin and your depravity when you know who God is. And so he goes back and forth for about three pages, as people are wont to do. And in the end, he says, "Eh, I don't know, we'll start with God. Because uh, he's really pious. So I figured if, if he didn't have a better reason to start with God than, than I do, we might as well start with God. So let's read John eight twenty one through 30 and think about who Jesus is and who we are in light of these verses. John chapter 8, verse 21. 
So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the inerrant and infallible word of our God. Let us turn then to think about who Jesus is. And while we do have much to say about verses 21 through 23, I want to focus for a second on verse 24. Verse 24 has a very difficult bit in it, and that difficult bit kind of comes in the middle of it, and it's going to be the focus of much of what we talk about this morning. Two small words here in the English, three small words. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he. This is one of the very famous ego a me statements from the Gospel of John. For those of you who don't know what that means, ego a me are two Greek words that come up repeatedly in the Gospel of John as Jesus seems to explain who he is. Ego a me means nothing more than I am. Okay, And we would typically fill it in with some sort of predicate. We'd fill it in with a noun or a pronoun or, or a phrase. So Jesus has just gotten done saying, I am the light of the world. He will say things like, I am the door, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread from heaven. Sometimes they are filled in that way, and sometimes they just kind of stand there. We would call that absolute. They're just there. He just says, I am. The most famous of which is coming at the end of this chapter in verse 58, where he says, before Abraham was, I am. But it happens twice here. It happens not only in verse 24, where he says, for unless you believe that I am, but it also happens in verse 28, when he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Am. The ESV translate that as I am he. And this is where the difficulty of the translation lies. To have Jesus say I am for many of us and just leave it like that would immediately provoke thoughts of Exodus and would immediately provoke thoughts of the idea that he is claiming to be God here. Okay? Now, there's nothing technically wrong with that because that's clearly where he's going because the Jews, after verse 58, are going to pick up stones to throw at him precisely because he seems to be claiming to be God. So we're not wrong in that, but it is clearly not what the Jews understand him as saying. Okay? In the Greek, it's much more subtle. It doesn't have the same affirmation that it would in English. In English, we never say, I am, unless we're being asked a question. Okay? But in Greek, you can say things like this. The Jews' response is much along these lines. They're, they're looking for him to fill something in. He says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And that's why they turn to him and say that you are who? You, you almost sense like a pause there when they're asking, like, you're, you're missing kind of a, a noun here, Jesus. You might want to throw something in there. Who, who are you? What are you claiming to be? That you are the Christ? That you are what? 
Even in John 9, 9, we have these same words, I am, on the lips of a man who was born blind but healed by Jesus, which clearly doesn't mean that he's claiming to be God. And so you can have them stand alone and not mean anything else. But to read it like it is, I think implies too little. To say I am he means you lose all connection to it totally. I doubt many in reading through these verses thought, oh, that's one of those I am statements because it says I am he. It is an important statement. To leave it like this sort of severs the likely connection that Jesus meant between what he is saying and the Old Testament. Now the connection will become clear. He's going to say it again in verse 28, and by the time, again, we get down to verse 58, he makes it crystal clear and doesn't leave any room. It's not subtle in verse 58. The grammatical difficulties of verse 58 make it bold. Before Abraham was, I am. That sort of break in grammar indicates that Jesus is claiming far more than he just kind of was, but he is claiming to be the God of old. He wasn't just a creature who was made. He is the very Yahweh of the Old Testament. So what are we to do with this little particular passage? Where does this come from? What's the idea that's being explained here? Many people think that this comes from the book of Exodus. So if you have fingers, hopefully you do, and you have a Bible, uh, use one of them to insert in John 8 and then flip with the other nine back to Exodus chapter 3 and we'll look at verses 13 through 14. In these famous verses, Moses has been commissioned by God to go and rescue his people from Egypt. God has started to give Moses this commission and Moses stops him and in verse 13 we read this. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the great I am statement from the God of the Old Testament, explaining the very core and the nature of who he is. It's interesting to me, and it kind of always confused me, and I'm sure that there are other cultural and and sort of uh, bound reasons why the Hebrews would want to know the name of God. But it's interesting to me that he says, I I need a name to take to them. He's already kind of got a person in mind. He's got a specific God in mind. He says, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they should know of this God. Why do they need a name? Why does he ask for this name? And the Jews had been embedded in this polytheistic culture where all of creation had been sort of divvied out to different gods for fertility, for crops, for rain, and for sun. And each one of them had a different name. And so what Moses is doing is probably in his own confusion over who this God is, is saying, what should we call you? You know, all the gods have different names. What would your name be amongst the pantheon of gods? Now, God, even though they are clearly wrong in their understanding, if that is indeed the reason why he's asking for a name, plays along with their game because he is gracious and he gives them his name. But his name implies much more than what Moses probably think it would. Their thinking is muddled by the earth, by the the idolatry that they are surrounded in. And so God gives them clarity with his name. And he says, I am who I am. I am the one who exists. I am the one who has always been. These other gods, they, they own all of, 
or they own their little part of creation, or so you think, but, but not me. I am the one who has always existed. All of existence comes from me. All of the rest of existence is only there because I have spoken it into being. I am the one who always is. And what's more, not only is he always there, it implies so much about God's character. It implies his power. If God is always the one who is, it means that he never changes. If he is who he is, it means he is never who he is not. And he can never be who he has not been. He is always the same. And he is powerful because all the things that are in existence have come from him. He is the only existent one. He never changes. He is always the same. Now, when thinking through that I am statement, which is an incredibly powerful statement of who God is, if that is what Jesus is claiming here, it makes perfectly good sense for us to translate it as I am. And in Hebrew, this works out really well. No doubt, the name I am in English and in Hebrew kind of comes through full bore back down in verse 58. But here, it doesn't work so well. Because John's writing in Greek. He's not writing in Hebrew. And in Greek, what we don't get is this passage translated, I am who I am. But rather, it's more along the lines of where, where those two words at the beginning are repeated at the end. Okay, I am who I am. That's not what we get in the Greek. We get something like, I am the one who is, or I am the existent one. And then later when he says, you are to tell Israel, what he tells them is, tell them the existent one has come. That's my name. Now that is clearly not what we have here. So this is kind of a difficult connection to make, but we do have a better option. And that better option is not in the book of Exodus, but it is in the book of Isaiah. So if you would now turn to Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 43.10, we have, I think, the actual text that Jesus is implying by saying, you have to know that I am. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Isaiah 43.10 reads this way. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am, that I am he, that ego in me. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. This happens to occur in an incredibly important place in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 marks a significant change in that book from sort of the historical upcoming ramifications of Israel and Judah's disobedience. Isaiah 39 ends with the utter devastation of Jerusalem as Babylon will take everything that is precious and good away. But Isaiah 40 changes immediately. And instead of having everything removed, Isaiah is told to say, comfort, comfort my people. And he will be comforting his people primarily through this coming servant that is spoken of here. So there are at least four reasons why I think this is a better passage for us to think about. First, the idea of the servant makes an appearance. It is quite clearly focused on the servant. My servant whom I have chosen so that you might believe that I am he. This servant is something that we quoted last week, as a matter of fact, before I even got to working on this part of my sermon. It was quoted from Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 8, and see if these sound familiar from last week. If they don't, don't feel guilty about it. There's a whole bunch of stuff from last week that you don't remember. I don't remember half of it. You're okay. So, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. This is the Lord talking to this servant that he will send. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. 
I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. In other words, I will give you as a light for the nation to bring salvation to the nations. This is what we talked about last week. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. It is clear that in the Gospel of John, Jesus is setting himself up as the servant. He is a light to the nations. He is the one, according to Isaiah 42, who has been sent by God. God will give them. Notice what he says there in 42. I will give you as a covenant for the people, just like in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The Spirit is upon this servant, just as it is upon Jesus. There's little doubt that Jesus is being set up as the servant. And so one of the things that we would understand from this is the image of light and the image of Jesus being a servant here is sort of imaged in Isaiah 43. But what's more, Isaiah 43 also talks about witnesses. The exact same idea that we had earlier in the passage in 8, 12 through 20, that there were witnesses. The Father always witnesses to everything the Son does, everything he does, whether it is witnessed to by a miracle or whether it is just Jesus speaking, the Father always witnesses to it because the Father is always with him. In the passage from Isaiah 43, he says, you are my witnesses, talking to the people of Israel. And then he says, declares the Lord. And again, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it doesn't say declares the Lord. He says, as am I. Okay. I too am a witness with my servant. In other words, in the Greek, it seems like the father and the son, the father and the servant, the Lord and the servant are both witnessing to the fact that the father is who he is, or the son is who he is, or in this case, Yahweh is who he is. There is witnessing going on, exactly what has been happening in John eight twelve through 20. Furthermore, there is the emphasis on belief. In John, Jesus stresses that we must believe. If you don't believe, you will go to death with your sins on you. Here again, the stress is on belief. He says that you may know and believe me. The Father witnesses to the Son so that you would know and believe. The emphasis is again on trusting and knowing who this person is and knowing in belief. This is precisely what Jesus seems to be implying that God the Father has always witnessed so that you might believe. His witness is always there so that you would trust in him. And importantly, this in the Greek matches precisely what happens in Isaiah. The exact same words with nothing attached to them. They just sit there bare. Now, you'll notice that in the ESV, both of them are translated, I am he. If that's what they meant to do to provide that connection, that is fantastic and is a really, really good translation. In other words, what he's saying is, You need to believe that I am. I am the one who has saved you. And here is where Jesus is doing something phenomenal, and we would miss it if we're not being careful. When you read through Isaiah 43, when you read 40, 41, 42, 43, on throughout, even through chapter 53, which is the most famous passage in Isaiah about the suffering servant being sent and being beaten for our transgressions and wounded so that we might be healed. Jesus here is flipping the script because it seems like what's happening is the servant is going to witness that God is indeed the one who will save his people. But what Jesus, who stands as the servant, is saying is not that God is he, but he's saying, I am he. 
And so what we would expect is the servant to witness to the Father that he is indeed the God of the Old Testament, that this is the God who has come to save you. But what Jesus actually says is, you are supposed to come and believe that I am the one who has come to save you. I am indeed the God of the Old Testament. The servant and the God of the Old Testament are one and the same. He's not just referencing Isaiah, but he is interpreting Isaiah for us. The witness is not just that the Lord is with him. You can read what Isaiah or what what Jesus has said here in John 7 and John 8 and think that what he is claiming is just that God is with him. The Father is always with him. You can believe like Jehovah's Witnesses almost assuredly do that this is some powerfully created being from before the foundation of the world that God has sent to get salvation for his people. He is not God, but he is God-like in his power and his ability. And so because of that, he comes and he just does what the Father tells him to do. But that is not what Jesus is claiming. He is not a powerful being who simply does what God has told him to do. He is God himself, enclosed in human flesh. He is nothing less than the Lord. He is nothing less than Yahweh. He is nothing less than the I Am. Listen to how Isaiah 43 begins. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, and I will gather you, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then he turns around, and in verse 10 he says, so that you would know that I am he. The one who is he, the one who you are supposed to know, is the one who has created and formed Israel. He is the savior of Israel. He is the one who has done all things for Israel, who not only has protected them in the past, but will continue to protect them in the future. He is the one who surrounds them, who has guided them and directed them. He is the one who will ransom them and redeem them. He is the one who will call them back to himself. That man is no less than Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ is no less than God himself. The one that was sent, the servant of the Lord, is no less than the very essence of God himself. He is very God, a very God, and as we've talked about, he is light of light. God has taken on flesh. He has not, not sent somebody else to be his proxy in gaining salvation for him, the way that Jehovah's Witnesses talk. God has not allowed anyone else to take his glory from him. He will not allow anyone else to say that he is the savior of Israel, to say that he is the one who has redeemed Israel. There is no creature who can do that because that would take glory from God. Instead, God has sent his servant who is nothing less than his son to the earth that no one might take his glory from him, that he might be seen as the savior and the redeemer of Israel all by himself. And to seal this, we have Isaiah 43:25. In Isaiah 43:25, we get ego eimi twice in a row. He says this, 
I, I am, or probably better, I am, I am, he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Notice, he forgives sin. He remembers it no more. Jesus here in John 8 is saying, listen, you will go and your sins will go with you to your death. You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. But believing that he is, believing that he is the one, believe that he is the I am, what will happen? I am is the one who blots out your transgressions. He is the one who will remember your sins no more. That is who Jesus is. He is the one who forgives sins. He is the one who remembers them no more. Why would we care if Jesus was nothing more than just a creature? If Jesus was nothing more than just a good man who worked really hard for us? Why would we care if he forgot our sins? It doesn't matter who remembers your sins. It doesn't matter who brings them up. If God has forgiven them, they're gone. It doesn't matter if the world lines up to speak of how evil and wicked you are. If God has forgiven them, there is no one left to judge. Who is there to condemn? Jesus Christ has died for your sins. What does it matter if you gain the recognition of the whole world, if the world has nothing but good to speak of you, and God has nothing but condemnation for you? It is worth nothing. What is it good for you if the world condemns you Everyone in the world stands up and condemns you, but God justifies you. It is worth everything. Jesus will forget your sins. Jesus will forgive your sins. He will blot them out. And this helps us understand verses 28 and 29 better. Listen to what is said. Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do things that are pleasing to him. That being lifted up probably refers to two things, being lifted up on the cross and being lifted up in the resurrection, if not the ascension tied into that. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he is showing himself to be the good servant. He is showing himself to do everything that God has called him to do, that he doesn't waver to the left or to the right. He doesn't go an easier route. He doesn't deny what God has placed before him, and he d- drinks fully the cup that God places in his hands to drink. He is willing to do everything that God has called him to do. But he shows himself to be the great I am when he pulls himself back up out of the grave. He is raised up to show that he is a good servant in the crucifixion and he is raised up from the grave to show that he is nothing less than God. John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Notice how close the Jews are here. Back in chapter 7 when Jesus says, I'm going to go away and you can't find me. They said, is he going to go to the Greeks? And they understand it better now. They say, is he going to kill himself? Is he going to commit suicide? They're close. It's not suicide, it's sacrifice. He lays down his life because he is the good servant. He takes it back up again because he is the great I am. He is the servant who comes and dies for you, but he is the God who redeems you. 
The great God of the Old Testament is nothing less than Jesus Christ. Come to us in the flesh. He is the rock, the creator, the sustainer, the provider, the redeemer. He is the one who stops the sun for us. He is the one who drives water away from us. He is the one who provides us clear ground to walk on. He is the one who breaks down the walls of Jericho. He is the one who drives out the nations from amongst us. He is the very God of the Old Testament come to deliver us from our sin, which means that we need to then discuss who we are. Again, this passage is trying, I think, hard to contrast the glory of Jesus Christ with who we are. He says first that we are seekers. He says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. They will seek me. There's really only two places for Jesus to be. When he goes away, he's going to be killed. And either his bones are in that grave or he's been resurrected. But either way, you're not going to be able to find him. It's an odd statement for Jesus to make. But what he doesn't mean is you're actually going to seek out the Jesus who stands in front of you. What he means is you're going to seek out who I really am. You're going to seek out your Christ. You're going to seek out your deliverer. You're going to seek out your savior, but you're not going to be able to find him because I will be in heaven and you have no idea who I am. We always seek the things that we want. We always seek salvation from this world. doesn't matter if we're in an age of politics. doesn't matter how good America is. We are still continually confronted with the idea that America is not a great place, that there are things that need to be fixed. And so we fight these things. We are continually looking for someone or something who can fix the problems of the world, whether it's a political solution, a military solution, an economic solution, an environmental solution. It doesn't matter what it is. There are all these problems in the world, and we try and fight it with money, with slogans, with policies, and with technology. It doesn't matter. We're always seeking it. There is one who can deliver us from all of these things, from all of the evils that face us. And no matter how much we seek them in other things, they will never provide for us what Jesus Christ can and has provided for us. Other people view this as coming from other gods, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad. We look to these things to provide what only Jesus can. We are seekers, and we are wrong to be seekers because Christ has come, and he has accomplished all that there was to accomplish. Secondly, we are doomed to hell. It's hard to believe that Jesus means anything else by that when he says, you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. You cannot approach God. You cannot come to God. Your sin looms over you. It separates you from God. And God will crush you because of your sin. There is no doubt in Jesus' mind that this means that they are not one with God, that they cannot come to God. Jew or not Jew, it doesn't matter. Their sins will follow them. God will remember their sins and he will punish them for their sins. Who could dare approach God as a sinner? Who could dare come near him? Psalm 15 O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Friend, who amongst you is good enough to do that? Is there anyone who wants to stand up and claim these things for themselves this morning? 
We are doomed to hell in our sin. Anyone who thinks differently, Jesus says, I have much to say about you, and I've got much to judge. We are from below. We're not from God. We're not from heaven. We are subsumed under Satan's realm. When Adam refused to do what God had commanded and listen to the voice of his wife, and when his wife didn't listen to the voice of her husband, who should have been the voice of God, but instead listened to the voice of the snake, they turned over all authority on the earth to the snake, and the serpent has ruled and reigned ever since. This is his world. Until the kingdom of God has come, it was his world. And we are kept under his power and domain. He blinds us and he keeps us hopeless. He will always give us what we think is good so long as it drives us from God. And part of the reason why that works so well is because we are of a fallen world. We who are below live in a fallen world and we have bad faculties. We cannot make sense of what is around us. We don't understand well. We can't hear, see, think, reason, or feel rightly here. The truth evades us. Therefore, we don't judge rightly. The promised salvation and the promised Savior stands directly in front of the Jews and they can't see it. Not because they're worse than everybody, but because they are just like everybody. We easily miss him for he is judged according to the flesh. And because of that, we're cut off from God. Being from below means that we are not from him. It means that we're not going back to him. It means that we are estranged from God. We are at enmity with God. We don't know him, we don't esteem him, and we are not capable of seeing the glory in him with our own two eyes. In all of this, we are very small. We are nothing but idolaters awaiting destruction. We are blind and doomed to never see. We are dumb and unable to come to understanding. We are deaf and unwilling to hear the call of our Lord. We are imperceptive in the very sense that we don't even know that we're deaf, dumb, blind. Yet, some of us believe. We are fully unworthy of grace. That's why it's called grace. And yet he continues to give us grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. By the work of the Spirit in us who allows us to see the kingdom of God, we can see who Jesus Christ truly is. We are not like him. We are the ones who seek, but he is the one who is sought. We are those who sin, but he is the one who has sinned against. We would die in our sins, but he dies for our sins. We are slaves in this world, but he is the savior of the world. We are judged according to the flesh, but he is the judge of all flesh. We lack understanding, but he knows all things. And friend, here is the most mind-boggling thing of it all. It's not just that Jesus Christ forgives your sins. It's not just that he forgets them. It's not just that he blots them out. It's that he doesn't leave you there. As different as you are from him, as he is the great Holy One who always does what is pleasing to the Father, and we are wretched, empty sinners. Yet he has come not simply to forgive our sins, but he has come to remake us in his own image, that we might not be who we are anymore, and we might be just as Jesus Christ is. The gospel is very simple. Jesus Christ, knowing your sin, has come to take it for you. The wrath that was due to us is poured out upon him and he takes it gladly and willingly so that you might be forgiven for your sins. That if you trust and believe in that sacrifice, there is no more any condemnation that hangs over you. And the work of God and the Spirit, the effect of that gospel is that you are changed from one pattern of glory to another. 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared 
but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That is the most mind-boggling thing, not that he forgives you, but that he will remake you, that you will not be who you are anymore, but that you will be glorious and wonderful and holy and righteous and blameless. You will be everything that Psalm 15 says you ought to be. So friends, with such a great friend who yields such power for our benefit, who is capable of doing so much more than we could possibly imagine, who is faithful, who is loving, who is kind, who is compassionate, who is sovereign over all things. This Jesus who has come to die for us and has been raised for our justification. Why would we leave doing anything else besides praising his name and what in the world could possibly scare us? Why would we be anxious about the things of the world or despair about the things in the world that face us? Let's be filled with optimism. Let us be filled with glory. Let us walk as in the light. Believe in Jesus for he is the light of the world and in following him you will never walk in darkness again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we see something wonderful in Jesus today. One who is so holy and perfect and glorious that if we saw him as he truly is outside of your grace, his glory would destroy us. Let us cling to him in fear and reverence so that we might not die in our sins. We pray these things for his glory and for our good. Amen.